Welcome back to another episode on the Contemplative Tribal Podcast. Today's episode is a continuation of my talk with David Bla, who is the Assistant Professor of Counseling Psychology at the Martin Luther Christian University in Shillong. We pick up today from where we ended on the last episode, and we talk about the importance of instrumental value, some practical tips on how to incorporate healthy habits, and how neuroscience gives us hope that we can change our habits and behavior with some effort and discipline. So let's get this going and make sure you share what you learn here with your friends and family. We are prone to thinking of success and achievement as being the result of skills, talents and abilities. And so success is somewhat limited to some people while the rest of us cannot achieve it because of our lack. However, in real life, success seems to be dependent on habits, if not more than on abilities. So let's take the example of civil service exams in India. Is it your skill, ability and intelligence? Or is it your habits that help you reach your goal? So when we think of goals, right, it's, it's always a journey towards that goal. So every time when we have a journey, there's always a car that we're driving, there's always something else, an instrument. The goal is our terminal value, because that's what we want to achieve. And the journey or the thing that we need is the instrumental value. When we think about civil service, we always think about the goal. I just want to get that goal. I, I just want to get that goal. We don't really pay attention to the instrumental value. We don't actually pay attention to the journey towards that goal. What does the journey require? So we need a constant method, a constant approach by which we will reach that journey. Therefore, we think of civil service exams. Don't just simply think of, I want to pass civil service exams. You need to think of what are the habits that you need to have towards passing civil service exams. For example, maybe you need the habit of studying. Right? You need the habit of timetable. When we say habits, right, these are behaviors that have become very secondary to you in the sense that they are just default, normal. They are just part of who you are. So when, when someone says, okay, that David, you, you need to study hard, and you say, yes, I need to study hard, that is not a habit right now with you. It is, it is just, an, it is just uh, you can say, uh, something that you as, aspire to. When does that become a habit? It is when you've actually ingrained that in your life. Uh, there's a very famous uh, uh, documentary of Michael Jordan that's happening right now on Netflix, The Last Dance. I love Michael. I never knew that Michael Jordan worked that hard. I mean, he, ha- he has the habit of going to the gym. He has the habit of responding, of thinking, of doing. All of us want to be good at playing basketball like Michael Jordan. Not all of us want to have the habit that, will, that makes Michael Jordan. So when, when you think of civil service exams, don't think of passing exam, but think more of the habits of a person who passed the exam. If you think about that, you'll be able to at least have one step ahead of a lot of other people in terms of preparing for your civil service exam. Okay, so can we chat about the how-to, the technique? And can you share about some of the ways in which we can incorporate this uh, instrumental value in our life? So uh, let me just... Uh, really uh, brought it down to three basic components. The difference between habits and other behaviors is the mechanism. Well, the secret of developing good habits is not really willpower. Most of us think that if you have enough willpower, you'll be able to develop a habit. But it's, willpower is important, but 
there's something else which is more important. And you need to have these three things. Habit, right, depends on the context. You must have a, a, a cue. You must have something, something that you relate to particular behavior. And there must be a reaction or response. And there must be a reward. Cue, response, and reward. For example, if I want to have the habit of reading, I must have a very good reward for reading. And that reward should not happen after four or five days. It should be at that moment after I finish to perform the task. So I should make sure that, okay, as soon as I wake up in the morning, my couch will be my reading couch. So every time I look at my couch, that will be the context cue that will prompt me to read. So I look, I, as soon as I step out of my room, I go to my living room, I see the couch. And as soon as I see the couch, I should start to go there and start reading. And when I read, even if, even if you might not find it interesting, but the, the, the point is to engage in an activity. And then after you engage in the activity, you must have a very good reward. For me, my reward for reading is that, not that what I read is good, but I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm, I'm inculcating the habit that I want. So it's like, it's like I'm patting myself on the back. Like, good job, David. You're doing this. You're, you're, you're one step closer to your dream, right? So that, that uh, particular loop between context, response, and reward is very, very important in the initial phase of developing habits. When you experience that, you tend to do it more and more because all of us will want to do a behavior that we enjoy. We feel good about it. So the more, the, the, the more we repeat this behavior, right, within the same context, within the same cues, this behavior gets stronger and the association gets stronger. So the next time, when, how, how do we differentiate between habitual behavior and other forms of behavior is that you don't care so much about the reward anymore because the behavior is no, lo is no longer sustained by your reward but the behavior is, is sustained by the association of your actions. We, we have to repeat the same behavior over and over again so that it becomes slowly automatic. Okay, so if you want to start a habit in your life, you have to put in a reward system to the activity. So let's say you can eat chocolate every, every time you read one chapter every morning. So you do that long enough, eventually... You're reading a chapter willingly every morning, not so much because you like the chocolate or you want the reward, but simply because it has become a habit. Uh, this, is, this is one of the studies that has been done where people, if they want exercise early in the morning, they actually uh, mm -hmm. put their shoes out, uh, out of the like, near the door, and when they come back, they have chocolate. Once a habit becomes a habit, you don't care about reward. It's the, it's the association of the actions, of the behavior, that is what maintains habits later on. Okay, just to switch gears and direction of the conversation a little bit, let me talk about virtues and its connection or association with good habits. So when we, when we talk about habits and virtues, uh, I try to relate this along the same lines of the philosophers, for example, like Aristotle and the theologians like Thomas Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition and a lot of other philosophers and theologians who work along the line of virtue ethics. Because when we talk about virtues, most of us think of rules or principles, right? Uh, a virtuous person is not a person who simply acts uh, lovingly because he may act in, a, in lovingly for all the wrong intentions. But a virtuous person is a person who, who acts lovingly because it is, it is 
part of his disposition. He has an inclination to act. This is how, this is how when we're hungry, we eat. It has become so natural, right? We don't, uh, this, this hunger and eating is not something alien. The same, same thing with the idea of looking at virtues in one sense is that when we look at virtues, it's about the person's inclination towards developing the kind of char- character, the kind of disposition towards these things. So when you think of virtues as the person's disposition or the character towards acting in a good way, then it really boils down to a lot of, it has to do with habits. Our behaviors, when you, when you think about it, we can group them into, in, into very broad categories, goal-directed behaviors and habitual behaviors. So in terms of how do we look at uh, behaving in this principle of, of uh, loving, the, uh, loving your father, or that is embodying the virtue of loving parents, right? We have to we have to think about it in these two terms of broad categories of habitual behavior and goal-directed behavior. One thing one thing was very interesting by one professor Judson Brewer, right? He says that as soon as we're stressed, our prefrontal cortex switches off, and we go automatic mode. That means basic ganglia kicks in. So that means. Our goal-directed behavior, as soon as we're stressed, our goal-directed behavior gets exhausted. I mean, our capacity to think about goal-directed behavior gets exhausted. And what do we react? We react instinctually. We react naturally. We react whatever is our natural way of reaction. And what is that natural way of reaction? What is our instinctual way of reaction? Habitual reaction. Therefore, when you look at the relationship between habits and virtues, we need to think of, uh, we need to think of habits as the embodiment of virtues. Habits does not cover the whole scope of virtues, but it covers a big chunk of how do we actually live a virtuous life. The big chunk meaning 40 to 45% of our behaviors. When, when you come home, right, and, and something happened and your mother talked to you in a, in, in a very, uh, like, no, in a very maybe a rude way, you just react. And sometimes you're like, why did I react like that? You didn't plan to react. Sometimes a lot of a lot of the chances why you react is because you have habitually reacted in that. It has become your normal way of reacting to your father, to your mother. So therefore, when they are stressed out, they react in a way that has become very habitual. See, that is when when virtue takes root in its habit, when virtues become habit. So therefore, when you see in your elder, you don't think, oh my elders here, I should stand up. You just stand up. It just becomes so instinctual. So there's that's a strong relationship between habits and virtues. When we think of uh, certain aspects, right? We just see that oh, mom, is, our mothers are very good at multitasking, and dad can't do it. And when we think of driving, we see oh, men are very good at driving, women can't drive. So we we generally attribute this, right? We generally attribute this to maybe the some natural component that men can't multitask, women can. But when you think about it, right? When I drive, I can, I can eat half my chocolate. I can eat my ice cream on the other hand. I can text and drive. I can do a lot of stuff. But yet, when my mother drives, she's so glued to the steering wheel. And sometimes I'm like, she's, you can see the tension. I'm like, why is she so tense? And we will probably say, ah, girls, women, they can't drive. But, but, but if I were to rewind my clock and go back to the first, first moment, when I initially learned how to drive, I was like that. I was panicking. I was like breathing heavily. And I'm like so nervous. I'm like, okay, I hope there's less traffic today. I mean, I was as nervous as my mom. 
So what happened, what's the difference between me beginning and me now is that driving, the sequence, the, the sequence of, of turning, of turns, of, of, of braking, of accelerating, this has become very habitual. These particular uh, behaviors and reading science has become so habitual that I can actually act on something more. All of these uh, reading of the science, of the traffic, of brakes and understanding the vehicle, these all have become very habitual to me. So therefore, I can just easily go into my car, talk to people or do whatever it is, and, I'm, and I reach my destination. So, uh, so, so in that sense, when we look at mothers, mothers are pushed towards being multitasking. Girls are pushed towards being multitasking. They have to be, they have to study or they have to go to work. They have to look after the baby. They have to cook. They have to clean. They have to have family time. So because of the pressure that they are in, certain tasks, he doesn't think about it anymore. There's no deliberate effort of thought. For example, after, after salt, should I put uh, turmeric or should I put this, should I put that? It's become very, very habitual. She knows after this is this, this is this. So therefore, when you look at multitaskers, especially women, because they're pushed to it, these, because they have, they have been doing these behaviors again and again and again, these behaviors have become automatic. Yeah. Therefore, you can look at super moms. Super moms are the kind of mothers that have been doing this for a long time and they can handle it and they can handle more. Men are not multitaskers because they have never pushed to develop the habit of doing things. Women are multitaskers because they were pushed to develop that. Men are pushed to driving cars more than women. Or maybe men love to drive cars and women don't love, I don't, whatever it may be, but the idea is that women have more experience in, in the kitchen, therefore they can multitask in the kitchen because a lot of kitchen work has become very habitual. Men, when they go to the kitchen, it's like they're going to a new experience. So they become very thoughtful. Let me circle this discussion back to the question of the topic of neural plasticity. I've heard it being said that as we age, we are not as flexible. Uh, we are not able to learn new things and we are pretty much stuck to habitual patterns, habitual behaviors that we learned when we we're young. I wonder what neuroscience tells us about that. Is there a flexibility that, uh, that we retain even as we age? In other words, even as we grow older, do we still have the capacity and flexibility to be able to incorporate new things in our life, new habitual patterns and behaviors in our life? I mean, uh, there are still studies that show that there's, uh, there is some neuroplasticity still going on while you're older, while you're old as well, right? I mean, like in one sense, uh, neuroplasticity, the rewiring of your brain stops when you, you actually are dead or you have some neuro disease, uh, something wrong with your brain and all that stuff. So when you think right. about right. habits, how, whether you can learn new habits, when, even when you're old, you can. There'll be differences yeah. in, the, in the ability of, uh, uh, in the capacity, the working capacity of a brain of someone who's older and someone who's younger. So there are differences of the, uh, of, the, of the brains of people who are young and people who are old, but people who are old can still learn new habits. The question, the, the, the right. question is this, of how? That is the most important question. How, right. how can old people learn new habits? I think for old people, the, the, the hardest part is the desire to learn new habits because quite a lot of old people are pretty set in their ways. You know, <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't want to change. Yeah. So in one sense, I feel it's not really, a, it's not really the, the limitation of their brain, but it is, the, it is the discomfort that it might cause them because they're so used to their life. They're so used to doing certain things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, when we look at uh, transgenders and transsexual brain scans, there's an ongoing debate 
of saying, is there a female brain, is there a male brain? And when you look at some of these transgenders and trans trans transsexuals, that's what, that's what they're trying to say. It's like, when you look at her brain, her brain looks like a female brain, so therefore this guy is actually a girl. Or when you look at his brain, he has a male brain, therefore this girl is actually a guy. So there's, a, there's still a, there's still a, a, a talk and a discussion right, in, the, in the community talking, uh, trying to understand uh, were these people born with a female brain and a male brain or because of their habits, these brains have been shaped right, right. in a way to mirror the habits of their life. So, so that, that is the extent of how much our brains can change. If mm -hmm. I'm a guy and I, and I believe like I'm a girl, I would tend to do girly things. I would tend to do typical feminine right. things. And my brain needs to respond to these new behaviors. And how does it respond? It rewires. Right. And how does it rewire? It, it right. rewire a typical female brain. Not because my brain is female, but because of my behaviors. So I mean, like right. that's, that's, like, that's the scope of neuroplasticity, the, the ability to rewire brain. We don't really know. We have not reached the limit of knowledge of the potential of our brain. We're still discovering new, new things. Yeah. And to what we're discovering now, we can have hope of always relearning and learning new, new things that our brain has the capacity to change. So here's a quick summary of today's episode. Firstly, the difference between terminal value and instrumental value. Terminal value has to do with the long-term goal, the terminus, what you're aspiring to be. And instrumental value has to do with the things that you do on a daily basis, the practical things that you lay down in order to reach that terminal value. Often we think only of the terminal value. We, only, we are captured and enamored by what we want to become and we don't pay attention to what we need to do to get there. The advice today is for you to focus on instrumental value, on building habits that will push you and propel you towards your goal. What are you going to do every day? What will you do with the few hours of free time that you have? Those are the instrumental value that you can plan and build on in order to achieve your goal. Secondly, you can hack your system in order to incorporate habits and that is by laying down reward system so that you grow and develop a healthy behavior so that it becomes a habit for you a habit that pushes you towards what you desire in life thirdly to a certain extent we have practical control over our habits and therefore we have control over whether you and i become a virtuous person and lastly Neuroplasticity allows us the capacity to learn, unlearn, relearn, and incorporate b habits and good behavior that we desire in order for us to grow.